It's Friday, November 17th, and you're listening to Michigan News from MLive. I'm Patrick Shea. Coming up on today's show, a Traverse City hairstylist is facing a discrimination charge from the state and at the same time, suing the city. Reporter Jordan Hermony has more on that. But first, wild rice could soon be the official state grain. Hear why this first-of-its-kind designation has deep significance for Michigan's indigenous communities. Later on, Ben Orner has a recap of state lawmakers' final week of the year and a laundry list of legislation that passed through the House and Senate. And finally, Samuel Dodge tells us about an Ann Arbor man bringing the joy of soccer to displaced Ukrainian children. That's all coming up on Michigan News from MLive. The official state bird of Michigan is the American robin, the state flower is the apple blossom, and the state tree, the eastern white pine. But Michigan could soon have an official state grain, manumin. You might know it as wild rice, and it has major cultural, spiritual, historical, and nutritional significance to Michigan's indigenous communities. This fall, state lawmakers in both the House and Senate passed a bill to create the first state grain designation in the United States something tribal citizens have been campaigning for over the past five years. MLive's Sherry McWhorter wrote a story this week all about this legislation, which now needs only a signature from Governor Whitmer. That story is, of course, at our website, MLive.com. One of the key voices in that story is Roger Lebin. Bonjour. Matikunabe indigenikas. Gigudu adem. Ojibwe nishnabe andau. KK gitaganing anunjiba. What I said was... Uh, Hello, my my name as the in the spirit world as the, I'm called is Mantiguanabe, which means tree spirit or spirit of the trees. And I'm also from that fish clan, Gigun clan, and uh, the sturgeon clan. And I'm from uh, the Ojibwe Nation up here, and in, in the heart of Turtle Island. Labin is the water resource technician for the Lockview Desert Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. He's also one of the state's leading experts on manumin what conditions it needs to grow, and what's preventing it from doing so. He says this plant plays a key role in an Anishinaabe origin story. Our ancestors actually lived up in that main New Brunswick, eastern Canada there. And before 1492, there was a woman, Indian woman, who had this vision. What she dreamed was she was standing in, the, in this river, and she was facing that western direction. So she went to the spiritual leaders and asked, for an interpretation of that dream. When the spiritual leaders sought an answer to that, they were given seven prophecies. And what the first prophecy said was that we needed to leave because if we didn't leave, we would be facing death and destruction. Roger says that was the start of his ancestors' migration towards the place we now call Michigan. The third prophecy said that we needed to follow that direction that the sun sets. And we would know we were at our new home when we would find that food that grows on the water. Manumin, or wild rice, is that food that grows on the water. And it served as a vital food source through hundreds of harsh Michigan winters. But it's also a delicate plant. It can be easily disturbed. There were once vast rice beds on inland lakes throughout the state, but most of that wild rice has been lost. Roger says its decline started in the late 1800s when loggers came to Michigan. In the logging era, there were a lot of temporary dams because they floated logs. They didn't have the the rail system or the the trucks carrying the wood, you know, to market. 
When logs were floated downstream, they tore up the roots of wild rice. And as logging increased, wild rice did the opposite. Just guessing at it, I would probably say 80-85% of, of the uh, Manuman beds have been destroyed. Our oral history tells us about being able to watch the decline on an annual basis and maybe even on a daily basis uh, of our rice beds disappearing. You won't typically see saw logs floating downstream in Michigan these days, but motorboats pose a threat to rice beds in modern times. In Minnesota, the state has tried to address this problem. There are rules about the size of boat you can use near Manuman and no wake zones established around significant rice beds. We don't have those in Michigan. In Michigan, there's, there's absolutely no laws and no regulation when it comes to wild rice. That's Nat Spur, who's also been pushing for this state grain designation for years. He's vice chair of Michigan's Anishinaabek Caucus and a tribal member of the Nottawasepi-Huron Band of Potawatomi. Nat's hopeful that making Manum in the state grain will lead towards future protections around rice beds and educate the public who might not be aware of the plant's deep significance in Michigan's history. When you look at the people of the three fires, the Ojibwe, the, the Ottawa, and the Potawatomi, the three major tribes which, which once inhabited the entire Ray Lakes region, Wild rice accounted for at that, you know, through hundreds of years, at least one-sixth of our whole economy and accounted for about half the calories that we needed to make it through the winter as a people. As I mentioned at the top, the bill to make Manuman the state grain passed through the House and Senate before the legislative session ended last week. All it needs now is the governor's signature. And again, you can learn more about this bill and the people behind it by reading Sherry McWhorter's story on MLive.com. A northern Michigan hair salon has become a focal point for tensions between civil rights and freedom of speech. On Wednesday, the Michigan Department of Civil Rights announced a discrimination charge against a Traverse City hairstylist who says she'll refuse service to transgender patrons. Jordan Hermony is MLive's politics and culture reporter and joins us again this week. Hi, Jordan. Hey, thanks for having me. So what exactly led to this discrimination charge and what might it mean for this business owner? So it really centers on this business in Traverse City called Studio 8 Hair Lab. And back over the summer in July, the business made a Facebook post on its business profile, which effectively said that if you identify as anything other than a man or woman to, quote, please seek services at a local pet groomer, you are not welcome here, period. And that basically blew up online, um, gained national media attention um, for her claims. Uh, Geiger, Christine Geiger is the name of the hairstylist. She followed up in personal Facebook comments, as well as um, Google business reviews um, and other Facebook posts by the studio itself, in which she basically said that I only believe in two genders. And if you are asking me to use specific pronouns for you, uh, don't use my service. Now, it's important to note that she actually has not, according to the Michigan Department of Civil Rights, overtly denied service to anybody transgender, um, but her posts are effectively being viewed as discriminatory in nature. And uh, it led to the Michigan Department of Civil Rights earlier this week saying we are actually going to be filing one charge of discrimination against Geiger and her business. 
which once it goes through the process could result in Geiger potentially losing her license to do hair in Michigan, as well as pay some additional fines. Now, on Wednesday, you covered the breaking news here, this discrimination charge. But earlier in the week, you wrote about legal action taken by the hairstylist in late October. Why is Christine Geiger suing Traverse City and three of its residents? So the three residents, actually, that she's suing are the same three residents who filed civil rights complaints with the Department of Civil Rights. Um, And effectively, Geiger and her attorney are looking to get ahead of these administrative hearings that she'll have to go through to determine whether or not she has discriminated against transgender individuals. Um, And again, going back to the potential losing of her license. Basically, this legal action is to get ahead of all of that. She is saying that her posts made by her personally and her business, um, they were done so under her religious beliefs that there are only two genders. Now, the Department of Civil Rights is arguing that actually when she made the post, she never at any point mentioned religion. Uh, She never said that she was refusing service because of religious beliefs. She just outright said that she is refusing service. And so there is sort of a back and forth here. The Department of Civil Rights is viewing this solely as a discrimination case, whereas Geiger and her attorney, David Delaney, are saying, actually, this is a First Amendment uh, violation where you are telling my client that she is not free to express her religious beliefs. And... That's kind of where we're at at the moment. Um, These two will need to continue arguing out in court. Um, These processes will play out independent of one another. And and we honestly won't expect any real movement on this, Geiger's attorney told me, until likely sometime next year. You know, this tension between religious beliefs, freedom of speech and discriminatory business practices has been on the national stage before. I remember quite a few years back now. A baker in Colorado was refusing to make cakes for same-sex weddings. That local case grabbed a lot of national headlines and eventually made its way to the Supreme Court. A similar case played out in Indiana, too. Jordan, how big of a story might this become? What kind of reactions have you heard so far? Well, when the post was initially made, a number of local officials, elected officials, outright said that this doesn't represent us as Traverse City um, and that they were disgusted to see that kind of rhetoric posted online. Um, The city itself, there have been residents who have protested outside of Geiger's business. So, you know, there there really has been sort of a a local reaction to it. But um, this is going to kind of test where the line between posting and actually committing an action, at least in the eyes of Geiger and her attorney, um, this is really going to test that boundary because Geiger's attorneys have told me that this is just a post. This is just her. This is a pure speech, I believe was the phrase that they used, um, case where because she has not actually physically denied service to somebody, um, this is going to be an attempt of the government to quote unquote crack down on her her speech, I believe the actual phrase that they said was um, a speech burden based on audience reaction is just government hostility. Meanwhile, the Department of Civil Rights Director John Johnson said Wednesday um, that you don't have to overtly kick somebody out of your front door to discriminate against them, where if you create an air of unwelcome atmosphere, if you openly say that we will not cater to a certain kind of individual, that you are creating a discriminatory atmosphere, and that the state civil rights act actually prohibits that. 
Um, there, there's a litany of things that you can't do uh, in terms of denying people service based on their gender or their weight or their height or religion um, and, and various ways that you can't do that, including posting, which is what they're saying this Facebook profile thing uh, amounts to currently. Definitely a story to follow. Jordan Hermony is a reporter covering politics and culture. You can read her story all about this Traverse City hairstylist facing a discrimination charge at MLive.com. Thanks, Jordan. Always a pleasure to be here. Last week was a busy one for the Michigan legislature. Lawmakers were hurrying to get major bill packages over the line before the end of the legislative session. MLive's Ben Orner was at the Capitol covering all of it and joins us now for a quick recap. Hi, Ben. Hey, Patrick. So let's start with an issue that's proven very important to voters in Michigan and across the country, and that is abortion access. Last week, Democrats passed repeals of certain abortion restrictions in Michigan. Tell us what those restrictions were and what the impact of removing them might be. So these are laws that are called TRAP laws. Uh, That stands for Targeted Restrictions of Abortion Providers. And basically, uh, abortion advocates and uh, Democrats in the legislature argue that these are uh, politically motivated restrictions on abortion access uh, that serve uh, really no medical benefit. And so uh, some of the restrictions that were repealed last week in the final week of the legislative session include uh, facility requirements like uh, hallway width or procedure room size, basically treating an abortion clinic like a full-on surgical center. Uh, There's also uh, a requirement that uh, will no longer be in effect that patients be given certain state-mandated materials on alternatives to an abortion, like adoption. Uh, These materials can sometimes include a picture of a fetus, uh, and then there's also, there was also a ban on um, colleges being able to refer abortion services to students. They'll be able to do that now. Uh, there are two notable things uh, that did not make the final bill, and that's because there was a Detroit rep named Karen Whitsett. Uh, she did not agree that Michigan's 24-hour waiting period for, for an abortion and its ban on Medicaid uh, insurance covering abortion, she did not believe those should be repealed, and because uh, Democrats uh, couldn't lose even one vote on their side uh, to pass something through the House. Um, they had to negotiate with Whitsett, and those two things ultimately didn't make the final version. Yeah, so some give and take there, but from the Democrats' perspective, some progress made in you know removing some of these restrictions to abortion access in the state. Now, one bill we talked about last week on this show had to do with clean energy. It basically removed local control over the location of wind and solar projects and put that in the hands of state regulators. But Ben, could you give us an update on the status of that bill and any other energy-related legislation that passed last week? Yes, yeah, so uh, that bill is now on its way to the governor's desk, as is uh, its sort of companion package of legislation, um, which requires 100% of Michigan's energy by 2040 be produced by renewable sources like wind, solar, and, and nuclear. Um, and so that's the goal. And so this, uh, the technical term is siting, basically, you know, approving a site for a renewable energy project. Uh, this siting legislation, um, Democrats hope can help Michigan achieve its 
clean energy goal. And basically, uh, maybe if someone's listening, maybe they, they live in a, in a township that had this kind of debate at one point where a landowner um, wants to turn their big uh, swath of farmland into a, a solar farm or a wind farm. And uh, maybe uh, folks pushed back, as many do, uh, because they don't want, um, you know, they don't want to see big wind turbines uh, out their front door. And so uh, that has been an impediment for Michigan transitioning to clean energy. Uh, so what Democrats in the legislature came up with was uh, this package to allow the state to approve uh, large wind and solar uh, projects instead of allowing uh, a local township, for example, to do it. Uh, the locals will have a spot at the table, so to speak, um, when a, uh, a landowner asks the state to approve a project, but the locals can't put any restrictions on a project that's stricter than the state. So uh, it, it's like they have a seat at the table, but they really can't vote. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out, you know, the push and pull between aesthetic concerns, environmental concerns, but also the need to make this transition to renewable energy. So Michigan's potentially new law here about the siting of these locations will be interesting to follow. Now, Ben, finally, the issue of transparency. Michiganders might remember voting on Proposal 1 last year, a ballot initiative that would require annual financial disclosures from top officials in the state. Give us an update on that and how lawmakers have dealt with these calls for transparency. So the big thing here is that although uh, voters approved Um, the ballot initiative to require these things, it was really up to lawmakers to decide how stringent they want to be on themselves. And in the spring, um, as legislation was being worked out uh, behind closed doors, you heard a lot of calls from from legislators, from from legislators and Democrats in the majority saying, you know, this is going to be historic legislation, you know, we're going to be very transparent. And the end result that came out over the past uh, few weeks was not exactly as, um, well, it didn't have as, as, much, uh, as many teeth, I, I should say, as, uh, as folks thought. Um, there were Democrats who were against it. There were Republicans who were for and against it. Um, it was really a, a mixed bag of uh, support and dissent instead of being uh, a usual like down the, the center aisle kind of issue. Uh, basically, the the legislation that they settled on requires, uh, elected officials have to report their sources of earned and unearned income and descriptions of assets, only descriptions. They don't have to report amounts of the stuff that they have, and their spouses will only have to report their employer, their occupation if they're a lobbyist, and any relationships with companies that do business with the state. There were, there were calls for... Uh, these bills to be more stringent, um, but ultimately uh, it's a step in the right direction, uh, transparency hawks say, but uh, there could have been more. Ben Orner covers the Michigan legislature for MLive. You can read much more in-depth coverage of this deluge of legislation that passed last week at MLive.com politics. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Patrick. And now the story of a University of Michigan professor bringing joy to displaced Ukrainian children through the sport of soccer. MLive's Samuel Dodge wrote a profile this week of the man the kids call Pirate Mike. Sam, tell us more about Michael Lorenk. So, Michael Lorenk, 
or also known as Pirate Mike, to a lot of the Ukrainian children he's been helping overseas. Uh, he is a University of Michigan kinesiology professor. And before that, he was working for Google for 20 years. He revolutionized their digital sports marketing space, but he also brought, helped bring Google to Ann Arbor. And that's really helped, uh, you know, Ann Arbor and Google. I mean, that's, that's been a marriage there for about 15 years now. Uh, so he really helped uh, bring that in. And more recently, as we'll talk about, he's been helping Ukrainian children uh, who were displaced by the Russian invasion. And you wrote that Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022 hit close to home, literally, for Lorenk. How has his life experience made him especially empathetic towards the people of Ukraine? I mean, long story uh, of his life. We'll try to compress here. He is originally from Poland, and his life story is, you know, Russian occupation, trying to separate from Poland from Russia in 1989. And then he saw the invasion of Ukraine and said, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, raw emotions that he was seeing. He was in Los Angeles at the time at a conference when that all broke out. And it just really affected him emotionally. And he talked to me a lot about, you know, two, three days later, he's like, I have to do something. This is this is hitting very close to home in terms of his childhood experience. Yeah, and you wrote that he had two main passions growing up in Poland, independence and soccer being the other one. As you mentioned, he was an exchange student in Michigan for a while, played soccer here. He's a part owner of a semi-professional team in Ann Arbor. Um, and he, you referenced he went to a World Cup game at the Pontiac Dome back in 1994. So Michigan played a big part in his love for soccer. And then that love for soccer, it seems, played a big part in how he tried to help in Ukraine. Tell us tell us what that looked like and how he used soccer as a way to reach out to these refugee children. So first off, he he, he kind of he went to the the border with you know, one thing in mind, like, hey, I've got a, you know, I have these Google connections, I have this network, I'm a marketing marketing guy. He fundraised $100,000 and was just helping with essential items, you know, toilet paper, you know, food, you know, water, all this stuff that people needed as they crossed the border, because they were only carrying backpacks when they were escaping their home country. And he found that method to be successful, but a little chaotic, because uh, it was constantly running supplies, you know, back and forth from Polish areas and to the welcome center. But when soccer came, um, he just, he, he decided like, look, like we're making sure these people are surviving, but there's no joy uh, at the border right now. So he brought a couple soccer balls with him on uh, one trip and uh, he's a co-owner of AFC Ann Arbor. So he brought a couple of their scarves uh, and just started playing soccer, watching the kids play soccer. He played with them and he started seeing children smile for the first time. He started hearing parents say, oh, this is the first time my kid has laughed in, you know, four, six months, something like that. So it just really just it snowballed and snowballed into into that effort. He started organizing soccer balls to be shipped from a Pakistani, you know, soccer ball manufacturer. He got 5,000 soccer balls over to these uh, over to these people. And just it became this really big soccer you know, effort. And Lorenk is back in Ann Arbor now. What were some of his takeaways from this experience? I think the, the biggest takeaway for him, uh, talking to him, he, he really emphasized that, you know, one, it, it brought him closer to his country, a country in Poland that he hadn't been to in decades. Um, and he was in Lublin, uh, his hometown. And I think 
those were the times where our conversation stopped a little because you get a little emotional talking about, you know, oh my gosh, you know, I've been gone for so long and, you know, it, there's so much meaning to me coming back given my childhood. Um, but then also being able to find the joy. Um, he's a dad himself. He has two boys. Um, but seeing the parents uh, that he set up a sop- soccer camp. Uh, for these kids and with a kind of a local professional team in, in Poland and just, you know, seeing the kids uh, wear their, their blue and yellow Ukrainian colors, um, seeing them, you know, actually do drills, you know, have some purpose in the actual soccer that they're participating in. And yeah, it just, he started seeing parents just overwhelmed with joy that their children were finding another side and kind of getting on the other side of this trauma that they'd faced uh, with Russia invading their country. So just, I think as a parent, he was very emotional. And as a native uh, Polish man, he was very, very emotional. Samuel Dodge is the higher education reporter for MLive by way of the Ann Arbor News. You can read his really uplifting profile of Michael Lorenk at our website. And if you recognize his voice, that might be because of his biweekly Dish of the Week videos, which you may have seen on social media. So Sam, before you go, I've got to ask, what is the Dish of the Week? My next Dish of the Week, uh, we got Ohio State uh, Michigan Week coming up. Uh, we're going to get oh, yeah. some, some Michigan Stadium uh, food and uh, let everyone know uh, the food they're going to be eating uh, when the Buckeyes come to town. Sounds good. Well, Sam, thanks for your time. Thanks, Pat. Here's a quick run-through of the sports schedule for this weekend and into next week. The Lions hope to make it 8-2 this season as they take on the Chicago Bears at 1 p.m. at Ford Field. Then just four days later, they'll play again in Detroit, hosting the Green Bay Packers on Thanksgiving Day. That one's another 1 p.m. kickoff. The Detroit Red Wings also have a home game next week. They'll host the New Jersey Devils Wednesday at 7 p.m. But before that, it's the Pistons at Little Caesars Arena. They'll face the Washington Wizards Monday at 7 p.m. And despite all the off-field turbulence, Michigan Wolverines football is still undefeated, 10-0 after a convincing win over Penn State last week. They'll head to Maryland on Saturday, looking to extend that unbeaten record before the big one, Ohio State, November 25th. Kickoff in Maryland is at noon on Saturday. Michigan State football is headed to Bloomington, Indiana for a battle at the bottom of the Big Ten. That's another noon kickoff. In college hoops, the Wolverines are off to a 3-0 start and will face Long Beach State in Ann Arbor tonight, Friday, at 7 p.m. And just before that, the Spartans host the Butler Bulldogs at 6.30 p.m. For more in-depth coverage of Michigan sports, check out some other MLive audio content, The Wolverine Confidential, The Spartan Confidential, and The Dungeon of Doom, a Detroit Lions podcast. That's a wrap for this week. I'm Patrick Shea. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.